downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hello, welcome to uh, welcome, welcome to Objection to the Rule, News <laughs> and Politics with a Brooklyn Perspective. Uh, today is Sunday, September 9th. I'm here with Raymond, and we are expecting a call from Larry Sharp. Larry, you're on the line? I am here. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Larry. Larry Sharp hey. is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and entrepreneur running for governor of New York as a libertarian candidate. In 2016, Sharp was thrust into the spotlight when he campaigned to be the libertarian candidate for vice president. On April 21st, 2008, he received the libertarian nomination for governor of New York after becoming the first candidate to challenge Democrat incumbent Andrew Cuomo in July of 2017. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here, Larry. This, uh, my name's Raymond, by the way. It's uh, another veteran, hey, army veteran, but you know, we're all in the same almost boat. Almost as good as me. Almost. Yeah, almost, almost. I've got lots <laughs> of Marine Corps friends, though, so I think that helps make up for it. No, I'm kidding. We are all brothers, my friend. We are all brothers. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you here. We're excited to have, you know, uh, uh, such a, like, visible candidate on, get these questions asked, you know, get this, uh, get your word out there about where your positions are on, on um, well, these the, very the important issues. Well, the funny thing is, I'm the only candidate right now who's running who's being this open. If right. you've ever seen me when I speak in areas and all over the, the state, I don't use notes, I don't have rules, I just take any question, any time, it doesn't matter, and I always answer from from the hip, which is that, that can be good or can be bad, but what's wound up happening is people are starting to actually trust me, because... I answer any question, even if they don't like it, so I don't pander. And if you watch me throughout the last literally year, my positions rarely change. If they change at all, it's because I've learned something, and they change because I've learned something, and I tell you what I've learned. Well, it's so really it's great. It's a different yeah. way of doing things. It's a populist candidate position. That's really what I think uh, I think we're looking for these days in, in our leadership. So we're really happy to... To hear that, and uh, you know, then it's gonna it'll be even better to hear your answers on these questions. Uh, if we can, I'd like to just start out with a little bit um, about your military background. If you could just tell us a little sure. bit about your time in the Marine Corps and how it's affected your position on policy. Um, I'm not sure it actually has to be formed with you. I think the Marine Corps for me was more of a learning experience of me being of me to becoming a man. I mean, you may not know my background, but I was adopted as a as a baby, mm-hmm. and my parents raised me in the South Bronx. And when I left, my father was a corrections officer at Rikers Island. My mother was a waitress and then worked in a bank. And when we moved out to Long Island, we had got enough money to get out of uh, the South Bronx, which is Long Island, Suffolk County. My father passed away. And when he died, it was devastating for me, obviously, as it would for anybody who's lost a parent. And when I was 17, I went to the Marine Corps. And I went to join the Army, actually, because my father had met my mother in Germany when he was stationed in the Army over there. And that actually made me want to join the Army. So I went to join the Army, and the guy promised me everything. He said, yes, you're going to be a general in three weeks. You're going to be running the show. (laughs) You're going to be meeting beautiful women and doing what you, you know, whatever. And I thought it was great. So I was still in high school, and I walk out with all my, you know, Army paraphernalia. I have my my book book covers and my bumper stickers. And the Marine Corps guy is out there, and he says, hey, son, got a second? I said, sure. So I go inside, and he says, that Army guy, he offered you a lot, right? I said, yeah, I'm going to be seeing beautiful women and traveling the world and running things. And he said, we call that the solar plan. Everything under the sun. He goes, you know what I'm going to offer you? Yeah. I said, what? He said, four hard years. Are you ready? And I said, yes. And I signed up. And that's how I became Marine. 
And I was a Marine for about seven years. The first three was me trying to figure out how to be a man and lead and understand the realities of life. And I, I Marine Corps saved my life. The military is not for everybody, without question. And we shouldn't force people to join the military. If they don't want to join, they shouldn't. Um, but the reality of it is, for me, it was it was a very good learning experience. Absolutely. And my second tour in the Marine Corps, I used that to get a college degree and to go into intelligence. So I became intelligence, and I got a degree in anthropology while I was in the Marine Corps. Well, I would say that's that's definitely an area where it's influenced. I mean, maybe not necessarily how you think about it, but definitely influenced your position on policy because it you know it facilitated your your education in a way that really got you interested in these uh, you know in the issues that you're dealing with now as a candidate. Sure. And, you know, I'd like to pipe in and add, even though military experience is not for everyone, I think that it's very important for people who are who eventually uh, are in leadership positions, you know, like maybe even the presidency, where they have to coordinate with the military or as in the result, as in the president also have to, you know, they're in control of the military. They're the commander in chief. To understand yep. what that means when they deploy troops, what does that actually look okay. like on the ground? It's yep. not just a bunch of expendable ex- extras that you put on, in the field. What does that actually mean, and what are you costing the country? Yeah, as a governor, you'll well, be leading the national guard. I mean, with that with that in mind, I mean, it's one of the reasons why you find so many libertarians who are veterans are really against intervention in foreign wars because they've seen the damage that it causes, mm-hmm. and they've seen the, the results that are non-existent. And they see what it does. So you find, you know, there are many veteran libertarians, and they are all anti-war. They are only about defense of the nation, and that's it. They don't want to get involved in people's civil wars. Very that's true. Right. So you mentioned um, your your father uh, working in uh, the the incarceration. What was it exact specifically that he did? He was a corrections officer. Corrections, corrections officer. Yeah. Okay, there we go. So also uh, known as a CO in the in in the field. Oh, also known as a CO. Interesting. So well, that leads straight into my next question on um, actually on prison reform. You'd probably guess you'd get one of these, but uh, it's it's become in recent years a real hot button issue, especially here in the state of New York. How do you plan on approaching this very complicated and important issue if you're elected it is and it's a, it's a very valid point i have i have an advantage in this regard in that my father was correctional officer my mother was also a convicted felon mm-hmm. so my mother was the victim of the drug war uh, when i left to go to the marine corps she was unable to handle me leaving at my father's death and she was initially addicted to legal drugs and then eventually illegal drugs and mm-hmm. she was arrested and she was a felon i pulled out of prison when i got in the marine corps and got her back up in in you know try to get her back in, in action with my savings to kind of you know, get her a, a car and get her uh, a, a small place to live, to be on her own again. And it was hard. And when you're a convicted felon, life is tough. Um, and I saw it firsthand. And I, what I did to fix it was we started our own business. Because when my mom would go out and try to get a job, she'd have to lie on her forms all the time, because, hoping that she they wouldn't find out. And when she had a job, she was basically a hostage to that job because she was afraid if she lost it, there was nothing else to get. So because of that, I said, that's it. We're going to start our own business. And when you're an entrepreneur, there's no one to fire you. Yeah, <laughs> so that's true. We became our own boss. And that's, I'm an entrepreneur now to this day, but I, my first, this is my third business. My yeah. first business was with my mom, myself, and my stepdad. And we became truckers. We were truck drivers. Um, we became owner-operators for, for two vehicles. And with a small company, did a bunch of uh, deliveries throughout the Northeast. Yeah. And that's what we did. That's because great. we thought that was the best way of doing it. So I see both sides of this. And the problem is most people don't. Right now, when it comes to criminal justice, we, we, we are stuck with two types of black and white thinking. The first one is every CO is evil and every criminal or every inmate 
is a victim, and the other one is every criminal is, um, you know, a horrible person. Every CEO is an angel, and neither of those is true. The reality of it is there are people in prison who really should be in prison and probably should never get out, but at least should stay in as long as possible. And there are people who should just pay that to society and get out and have a second chance like anybody else. My mother is one of those people. Mm-hmm. And, the sec- and the third one is someone who should not be in jail at all. They shouldn't be there. The problem is I don't know which one is which. And we have decided in New York State to, instead of enlisting the corrections officers to help us make this happen, punishing them and calling them the bad guys and creating an environment of apathy. This is a problem. So now we have the people who control the inmates in a, in a position, in an environment of apathy, which makes the inmates who don't deserve to be punished get punished, which makes the SEALs get punished. Everyone's being punished, and all the leaders trying to be righteous. Do you think that I don't it's want a, to be righteous. Do you think that it's an issue of uh, the, the in, in, incorrect perspective or skewed perspective, or do you think that there's something structurally wrong with the the current yeah. institution that we use are you more of a rehabilitation supporter or are you more of a you know minimum sentencing you know cash bail like uh, you know we're, yeah. we're looking in california right now and re- removing the cash bail like where where yeah. do you what do you want to do for new yorkers um to and help solve this, this issue this is not a simple answer but this problem is decades long so i'm all three of those and i'll i'll touch all three Getting people into prison, people in prison, and then out of prison. Getting people into prison. First off, no one should go to jail for having a plant in their pocket, period. The idea that we put people in jail for possession is, in, is an embarrassment. That should not happen ever. That should go away right away. So if, if that isn't, the problem is right now they're doing things like saying, well, we should be lenient. No, but that means if I want to target you, I can. And that means if I want to add charges to you, I can. There should be no crime at all for having a possession of a plant, regardless of what the plant is. There should be no, nothing with that. If you do something bad, like you rob someone to get that plant, you should be, of course, arrested for robbing someone. If you hurt someone for get, to get that plant, you should be arrested for hurting someone. There's a victim there. But when you have a, something in your pocket or on you, and the, what I get is, but what if they have a lot on them? I don't care how much they have on them. You shouldn't get arrested for it, period. I don't care if you have 25 pounds of marijuana on you. Doesn't matter to me. That's possession. That should not be a crime, period. You should not go to jail for that. If you are addicted, that is a medical issue, not a criminal issue. Let's try to get you help. Let's not put you in jail. Think about this for a second. Our society has said someone who's a serious addict so we find out finally how bad they are because they committed the crime and done something terrible, has probably already lost their family, probably already lost their job, probably already lost their good looks, probably already lost their health, probably already lost everything that's valuable to them, all their money, and we think the answer is put them in jail. Wow, is that cruel. Oh my God, is that cruel. And expensive. So how about instead we don't do that? How about we try to help them? That's, that's getting them into jail. But once they're in jail, how do we deal with that? Well, without question, we have to have corrections officers as part of this plan. Because if we have unhappy guards of the inmates, we're going to have unhappy inmates. That's for sure. So when we start to do things to help the inmates, we need to stop just bringing in outsiders and deciding that they're the right answer. What does that mean? Example. Example was the idea of giving inmates um, uh, iPads, uh, tablets. I'm not against the concept of giving the inmates tablets at all. If, if some private company wants to give them away for, you know, some marketing piece or something, I don't have a problem with that necessarily. 
But I do have a problem with not at not having the corrections officers be part of that discussion and part of how we implement that. And we haven't done that. And that's why we have problems and things get worse. Mm-hmm. Let me interject so, real quick and ask about um, how do you feel about Rikers and the closing of Rikers? Because that's a local yes. issue that we have yep. spoken about in this show. Mm-hmm. Yes. The concept, and this is very clear, when we show the concept and the practice, the concept of closing Rikers Island, I don't have a problem with. The actual plan is basically non-existent. They can't just go, we're going to close it in five or ten years or whatever and not have a real plan. There has to be a real plan on how to deal with all the aspects of it, meaning how are we going to put it in the right neighborhoods, who's going to pay for it, all these things. And the plans I've seen have been a lot of hope. And I want to see a real plan. If I don't see a real plan, I'd rather reform Rikers, um, specifically at the top, and then also with bail reform. So when we begin, realize Rikers is not a prison, it's a jail. And that's a huge difference. Those who don't understand it, they think it's a prison. It's a jail, which means it's a holding pen. Mm-hmm. And if reforming we cash re- bail would really make a difference. Say again? Well, that the reformation, reforming, like what you were saying, with cash bails and whatnot, that would make a huge difference because what we're really so, facing yeah. right now is that long-term thing. I want to move forward really quickly because so you me, actually just mentioned... The yeah, cash go ahead and then we'll move on. Um, I'm totally fine with removing cash bail. If you think that there is a, someone who is a flight risk, that's okay. You know what you do? Put an ankle bracelet on them. I don't have a problem with that. If you want to charge them for the ankle bracelet, I'm okay with that. But you charge them assuming they're convicted. If they're convicted, that goes as far as your fine for paying for the ankle bracelet. Because if you're convicted, then you deserve the ankle bracelet. And you should pay for it. Mm. Absolutely. But if you're not convicted, I don't have a problem with it. I think the ankle bracelet is like $9 a day or something like that. I forgot what the price is. But it isn't that expensive. You can do an ankle bracelet for relatively inexpensive. And... Um, if you want to have a, a, if you want to actually charge them, and you don't want the government to pay because it's too expensive, then you can use companies that will actually uh, lease out or or use a bail for that, which would be cheaper than cash bail anyway. So there are many ways of getting around cash bail. If you think someone's actually a flight risk, you can use the ankle bracelet; and it can still fix it. Yeah, that's really good. It's and, and it's great to hear because I mean we're we're needing that. All candidates need to have a position on that right now because that's just a thing of the past. I want to switch gears Absolutely. a little bit really quickly and move in it in a bit of a different direction with policy. Um, during your campaign, you called for a decentralization of education, proposing a K through ten model. So that would yeah. be reducing the span of high school to ready students for a workforce and for college. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how you plan on structuring and implementing that kind of a radical change to the public school? system? Absolutely. Let me wrap up the prison reform real fast. I'll jump right on that. The last of the prison reform is getting people out of prison should not just be you're out, goodbye. It should be following the model that right now is in Massachusetts which is called the Humvee model. And what that is it has separate communities that go together in a separate area of the prison. Two COs or Christ officers are in charge of controlling it plus volunteers from outside because the people who will help you best are those who've been in your situation. So, for example, it could be maybe the gay and lesbian community. It could be veteran community. It could be gang member community. And, again, COs and inmates' families will help us to decide which those are. What's happened right now in Massachusetts, the recidivism rate in Massachusetts is about 75%. In their Humvee program, it's less than 5%. We want to copy that hmm. model here in New York State. Again, using both inmate families and former inmates, along with corrections officers, to make that happen to be the most successful. Did that wrap that up well? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to repeat sure. the question on education? No. Not oh, at all. you got, got it. Yeah. Yes. Education. Yes, absolutely. 
Um, education. Education is a disaster in New York State. We spend over $22,000 per student per year, which is more than even California, and we get mediocre results. It has to be a complete and total revamp. The first thing is I don't want any standardized testing until high school. Standardized testing at lower ages, all it does is several things bad. Number one, it makes kids who test poorly feel bad and feel stupid. They get labeled as dumb kids. We create a second class of, of, of students in elementary school. That's an embarrassment to not happen. Second, it is an unfair way of grading teachers and deciding if they're good or bad. Standardized testing is not the right answer to grade a teacher. Next, it's no indication of success. You can be a good t uh, test taker or a bad test taker and be successful or not successful. It doesn't mean you're going to be better in life. Next, it is an unfair way of deciding how schools get paid and how we fund the schools. It doesn't mean the school is better or worse, so it should go away. And then when I, when I say standardized testing, I don't mean everyday testing. I mean standardized testing. What will happen? Well, when it happens, Common Core will probably go away. Good. I don't care if Common Core goes away. The reality of it is Common Core should not be mandated. I'm not against the concept of Common Core. I'm against the, the mandate that forces you to use it. There are some students, there are a few of them, that will actually learn better on Common Core. And so what? Let teachers decide what to use. I don't mind if they change how they teach students. In fact, I'm the one guy who says, let teachers teach, and then I actually plans to let teachers teach. What, people, what, what other candidates do is they say it, then they add administrators. When we begin to make that happen and get rid of standardized testing and the idea of mandate Common Core, we will probably lose most gov uh, federal government funding, which I'm okay with. Let them. They'll fight us, and it's fine. I don't really care. Right now, we have about $60 billion being spent on, on education. $4 billion of that is federal. The rest is local and or state. So we'll lose $4 billion. But I can easily make that up with what I'm going to tell you in a, in a second. The first one is we won't need all these administrators. Uh, once we lose federal money, we lose all the federal um, uh, oversight, which means we don't require all these administrators. We actually have, in many parts of the state, um, districts where there are more administrators than there are teachers. That's an embarrassment also. It does not exist. I really want to teachers teach. Next, I want it to go K through 10. K through 12 is an anachronism from our industrial days and shouldn't exist anymore. A lot of states and I mean, a lot of local areas and also uh, Europe is already going to the K through 10 model because it's the right model. What you see in New York State too often is grade 11 through 12 is the following. Gym, study hall, video games, and smoking weed. Interesting. That is, an, again, terrible, but that's true for too many New York kids. So you're going to say, but Larry, some kids really work hard. I have a plan for them. I don't have a problem with that. But the problem is too many are not. How do I know that? Because if you go to college now, your first year of college is 13th grade. If you don't believe me, ask any kid who's gone to college. Ask any college teacher. Ask any college administrator. That's a fact. Your 13th grade. Our kids are not ready for college. Why? They spent two years playing video games. Of course they have bad habits. Of course they're not ready for college. We set them up for this. And how do I know that's true? Because the average kid now takes six years to graduate college. Well, yeah, something's wrong. So now you got a kid who has spent, uh, who was six years in college, two years in high school screwing around. They're 24 years old, never had a boss. And we wonder, why do they have no work ethic? The system is making them that way. Of course they have no work ethic. It's really hard. And it's a, a big problem. We can fix this. And yeah, and with a better Larry, better education a system, we can get we can get uh, you know we can get the education. That, I mean, I can see this concept of getting the education that students right now are spending thirteen years getting, and, and yep. a two year reduction is nothing in comparison to that. It's, yes, it's nothing. I mean, we do need to we do need to see more money in education coming from the state in terms of supporting our teachers, supporting our uh, public schools, making sure that each student has 
you know, equal opportunity to succeed. But with the right funding, with the right uh, system set up too, um, the, you know, we can we can see that same kind of success and maybe even t- exact like you're saying, you know, teaching students to be more uh, more prepared and and ready for this kind of concept after they've spent 10 years in school instead of spreading it out over or, uh, spreading it out over 13 years. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I want to really quickly, just so we have time, if you want to wrap up real quick, and then I, I want to move on to one last question, um, if we, you know, so that we can get some more more out of you on oh, the show and to get our listeners to no, know more no about worries, our libertarian no candidate. The, the, the piece here is once you're, once you're in 10th grade, now you can go off and do five different things. One, you can go to a prep school. If you, re- if you think college is for you, no worries. Go to a prep school, two-year prep school. That's amazing. You go there, and you're ready for college. You can rock and roll. Two, you don't want a prep school. You're super smart. You can take the SATs now. I love it. Go out and get an associate's degree right away. You're on your way to getting a doctorate or a master's degree. You're going to be a scientist or whatever the case may be. Off you go. Life is good. Next, you decide, I don't want to do any of that stuff. I want to be a plumber or I want to be a, a carpenter or a mason or a mechanic. Great. Go to trade school. To the trade school, you get out, you're 18, you're ready to rock and roll with 18, either as an apprentice or maybe even a license, depending upon how trade schools work. And if you don't like that, go get a job. Just go work. Get a work ethic. Go off and work. Life is good. Learn what it means to have a boss. See what it is to pay taxes. Decide what you want to do with your life. And I say, Larry, how's that going to work? How are we going to pay for this? Here's how. I'm a Marine, and you're, you're a soldier. You know. When you get out, they give you the GI Bill. They say, here's X dollars over Y years. Mm-hmm. We're doing the same thing. Every kid, when, when they graduate uh, at 10th grade, they get $20,000 and five years to put it wherever they want. What does that mean? I mean, that free means, college, that Larry. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about free college. <laughs> it is not free college. It is, the, the, it, is, it is free preparing for college. All right. That's what it is. It's prep school. And that $20,000 is actually saving us money. Because we pay, we would pay $44,000 over those two years. Now we're only paying twenty. But not just that. Now we're having an environment where all the kids in whatever school they pick and choose, they want to be there. Mm-hmm. Imagine your experience in a classroom with, as a teacher where all the students want to be there. That's what Imagine I'm doing right now. Imagine the students where all the kids want to be there. Well, Different you, I, environment. I think some New Yorkers can get behind that for sure. Uh, I'm glad I Absolutely. asked that question. <laughs> so we're actually saving money. There are give or take 400,000 11th and 12th graders in New York State. With that 400,000, saving over 12,000 per year, that's over $4 billion. That makes up right away for our federal funds that we would be losing. Hmm. So we have the same salaries, the same everything, no extra money, and better service. I don't want to add money at all. I want to use the money we have more efficiently. That's great. I mean, uh, so that's excellent. Um, that's actually uh, kind of encouraging. I look forward to, to seeing you, uh, you know, expand upon that as we get through these primaries and everything. Uh, so I want to change gears again a little bit and look at something that's more of a national issue, even a global issue. Um, but it's very focused here in New York. You know, you know how it is. Come on. We're not going to let you out the hook, Larry. <laughs> All right. So since the current White House administration took office, immigration policy in the U.S. has approached what many global leaders and, you know, Americans across the nation see as a violation of basic human rights. Many states and cities have adopted sanctuary policy, allowing undocumented immigrants to live, work and go to school without the fear of local or state government and or police intervention. Governor Cuomo has expressed his support for such policy many times and his opponent in the upcoming uh, in the upcoming election 
Cynthia Nixon, has stated that she plans to strengthen sanctuary policy in the state of New York. Can you share a little bit about what where you stand on New York as a sanctuary state? Absolutely. I think New York becoming a sanctuary state is a bad idea. I'm not happy with it all because there are too many people who locally just do not want it at all. It will only start trouble. The reality of it is this should be a long-term issue, which means I want each county to be able to decide its own policies and how it deals with ICE on its own. If you have a situation, for example, in Suffolk County, New York, where you have an MS-13 gang problem and you have a, a, a scared population and you have a police force that's overwhelmed, they may want ICE help. They may want federal funds. They may want to actually take some of their own budget and put it towards it, uh, that, that kind of issue in dealing with them. And we should let them if we want to. At the same time, I live in Queens. We don't have a problem. Why in the world should we be helping ICE? There's no reason to. We're doing just fine. So county by county should be able to deal with it the way they want, to include those who are up- upstate who may want to change how they deal with it because of migrant workers coming into farms. They want to deal with it each and each way. The reason why I say that is, if we simply do a blanket on no tolerance either way, you are going to have rebellion, you are going to have people fighting, you're going to have punishment. It's not going to work. If we allow each county to do what they want, as long as we have transparency on all of it, we will find what is right and what isn't right. And what doesn't work will change. How do I know that? You have seen in the southern southern states who've gotten very upset, who made very strict uh, rules and regulations on, the immigrant, on their immigrants, turn around and change. And go, whoops, we were just kidding. Sorry about that. Didn't work. And you find others who've gone too far go, whoops, we went too far. Didn't work. I'm prepared to let individual counties experiment with how they deal with ICE and the federal government. And what I believe will happen is over the course of several years, we'll find the right balance in each county. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm looking for a long-term solution, not a short-term solution. I think a blanket across this state, which is far too diverse and far too different in, in, in population, in ec- economies, in everything, a blanket solution is a bad idea. Now, Larry, I'm, I, I want to ask you um, a question that you probably always get a lot. And since our, our listeners probably are not as familiar with you as they should be, um, let's talk about um, liber- uh, what it is to be a libertarian. Because I know a lot of people, they put that mustache on and they say, I'm a libertarian, and when in fact they aren't. And also, That's I correct. know that you've had people react to you as someone who is African-American and yep. libertarian. People are like, why aren't you a Democrat? Let's yep, talk about on. both of those things right now. Sure. Let me talk about Democrats and Libertarians. Uh, libertarians first. What a Libertarian means is a Libertarian is someone who says you should be able to be as liberal or as conservative as you want to be. Just don't force others to be like you. And as a government, I don't want anyone to force, any, uh, to force anyone to not be whoever they want to be whenever they want to be it, unless you're hurting someone else. We actually want to change culture and not necessarily law. Law is very difficult. It's harsh. You should realize something. At the end of almost every law is a guy or a gal with a gun who will put you in a cage. And if you don't want to go in that cage, he or she will shoot you. That's a problem. What does that mean? That doesn't mean we shouldn't use law. We should. But it does mean that law is force. Government is force. And you should only use that force if someone's being hurt, if there's a victim. If I'm hurting you or kicking your stuff or violating your rights, law is absolutely the right answer, and you should go into a cage. I don't have a problem with that. But I don't want to use law because I don't like your activities, or I think what you're doing offends me, 
or I don't like you because of your background. That is not in any way, shape, or form a place for law. So when you understand that, it means that libertarians can actually cross over. And we have many libertarians who are left, many libertarians who are right, and as long as they don't want to force their views on others. When it comes to Democrats, yes, people often think I should be a Democrat. Why? Because I'm black? What has the Democratic Party done for the black community? Nothing. Zero. There's a nothing. What has the Republican Party done for blacks? Nothing. The black community has not been assisted in any way by either party. The Democrats, because Democrats take us for granted, and Republicans, because they assume they can't win us, so who cares? The Libertarian Party actively wants them. And here's why we want the black community. Because when I was a kid in the Bronx, here's what I remember. I remember when I was outside in, in the stoop, and I saw people braiding hair on the stoop for money. And back in the day when I saw guys, and many of them were Hispanic back in the 70s when I was in the Bronx, they were literally banging out cars back when, they, when cars were in the metal, banging out the dents, buffing them and repainting them for money. And we had gypsy cabs back then. We didn't have uh, Uber. So a guy would have his car, and he'd paint one door a different color. See, the blue car, he painted you know, the one door red or green, and we knew that was a gypsy cab because the taxis wouldn't come to our neighborhoods back in the day. That's how people made money. That's gone away. Why? Licensing, regulation, local rules and laws. We now have laws that we have regulations now in licensing for walking a dog, for braiding hair. That's Democrats. That's not Republicans. That's Democrats talking about safety, crushing the ability for, some, for someone to make money. And here's the worst part. You want to make the poor neighborhoods thrive? Give them back their entrepreneurial spirit. Many of the poor neighborhoods are immigrant communities. Immigrant communities are notorious, are famous for their entrepreneurial spirit. And we crush it. Not just that, we push out all of the cool new things. We pushed out cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. We've pushed <laughs> out uh, hemp and cannabis. We've pushed out, we're trying to push out the vaping industry. We push out all the cool new things that the youth want to be involved with. And most of that's Democrats. Republicans are guilty too. They're just as bad with their, with their ideas of, of stop, stop, stop. They don't want to, they're, they're the ones saying, oh, marijuana is evil and it's a gateway drug and put everybody in jail. And when they want to put everybody in jail, who are the Republicans putting in jail? Brown people. So Republicans and Democrats, neither of them have done anything to help the brown population in New York State, particularly the black community. Nothing. That's why I'm libertarian. I'm going to ask you um, a question that Cynthia Nixon has been pounding on Andrew Cuomo, and it's one of his weak points. What is your plan for the subway? Yes, for the MTA at large. For the MTA at large, because that's a really that's a huge issue. Because I know a lot of people upstate say, "Well, the subway doesn't run upstate." The truth is, is that the New York State economy depends on the city, and the city depends on the subway. Mm -hmm. So, please tell us what your plan is for the subway. Well, the biggest thing is the MTA is not just subway. The MTA crosses about eleven, I think it's ten or eleven counties. It covers many counties. Therefore, the MTA is not a city problem. Mm -hmm. It's by default the state problem. Um, it covers Long Island, actually goes into Connecticut. Um, I think parts of it may even cross into Jersey. I think it they does. Do. Yeah. Yes, so it's all over. It's definitely a state issue. So as a general rule, the NCA, again, is a complete and total embarrassment. A total embarrassment. And all everyone will say is we have to find more ways to fund it. Not just no, but hell no. I'm not going to keep throwing money at a horrible system. That is a bad idea. I'm a business guy. I'm not going to keep throwing money at garbage. It's not going to work. It has to be, again, a complete reboot. The first thing to think about here in the MTA is no more extra money. It gets what it gets. That's all it gets. Nothing extra. Now, I, w- I have to uh, obviously renegotiate with all, with all the people there 
and talk about how we can change some of the policies. Some of the policies are broken. But not just that. We've got to find other ways of raising money without taxation. Give or take, the MTA's budget is about, if I'm not mistaken, about $18 billion, give or take. About $6 billion of that comes out of things like specialized taxes and things like that, and mm-hmm. grants from the, from the state and from the city. All that goes away. That $6 billion's got to go. I'm not going to supplement the MTA's failures. Instead, we're going to find other ways of making money. And here's some of the ways we do that. Number one, we want to start using the actual lines that are in the MTA, Subway and others, that aren't being used in the evenings, and we want to start adding freight lines to those. If we start adding freight lines, things like the 6th train as an example, we do something like that, you will find that now it could be an Amazon hub or a Google hub or a, a, a Home Depot hub or a combination of hubs. We can use it that way so that they will pay for the maintenance and they will pay to move their freight into the city. And they can move their freight in the city, guess what? From upstate New York, from New Jersey, from Long Island. What does that mean? It helps more businesses outside the city and reduces truck traffic into the city, particularly at night, but throughout the entire day. On, that's just one answer. On top of that, we should be taking our bridges and tunnels. The MTA, I think, owns 11, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's nine bridges and two tunnels. Uh, I think it's 11. Um, or is it nine? I forgot. It's around 10. Whatever number they actually have, we can now start leasing out naming rights for those bridges. What does that mean? We control the asset. I never want to sell the asset off. But, would, but how about we name a bridge? Right now, as an example of a bridge I love to bring up all the time, is the Tappan Zee Bridge is now called the Mario Cuomo Bridge. We literally have an imperial bridge named after our royal family. Another embarrassment. If we took one of those bridges and said, why don't we lease naming rights out to that bridge? Right? Whatever that bridge. Triborough Bridge, but I'm using Mario Cuomo because it's already named. That, there are companies that will pay every, every year billions of dollars on marketing. They drop $20 million for a stadium that's used on the weekend. Why not drop 50, 100 million on a bridge that is literally in a 16 million person metro area, crossed by hundreds of thousands of cars every single day, and mentioned hundreds of times on the radio during rush hour every single day? Would they pay for it? Of course they would. How do I know that? Because I already have bankers in Manhattan asking me how we can finance it and how long the lease will be. And I already have, uh, we've already done um, uh, spot checks with marketing people in these large companies. They've all said, they're open to the idea. So that means it can be done. We could raise literally billions of dollars doing that, plus the freight, to easily make up that $6 billion and to cut that right off the top and not have other people have to pay for the MTA. To make the MTA have to give value and provide value for the people who use it for freight, for the people who use it during the day, and for the marketing value of the bridges and tunnels so it could pay for itself. Otherwise, what winds up happening is we're just going to keep supplementing failure. But I'm still not done. If we actually have these guys take care of the bridges, we'll actually have safer bridges. Why? People always tell me the same thing. Larry, if, if, the, if the, some private company runs the bridge, it'll collapse. No, we still own the bridge, mm. and we still inspect the bridge. Right now across New York State, bridges fail, and they collapse, and people die. That happens now. Less of that will happen if we have, it, if we have, them, have the naming rights, because we'll inspect it. And if they don't fix it, they lose the contract. Mm. We have, we can actually fire them. We have repercussions. We will have safer bridges. But even more, if they control the maintenance and they're paying us, we don't need tolls. Tolls go away. That's a good thing. No tolls means truck drivers or owner operators, like I used to be, don't drop 100 bucks across the bridge anymore. Mm-hmm. Not just that the average commuter doesn't have to pay to cross the George Washington Bridge or the Verrazano Bridge. We're not so borrowing people bucks. from using a bridge because they don't have the money to cross it. That's correct, and from traveling within our, within our state and within our city. It's insane. So we get rid of tolls, 
safer bridges, less money going to the MTA, better service for the MTA. Now, the MTA has happened. They may be unhappy. They may want to fight me. No worries. The MTA itself, the leadership structure, gone. It is a disaster. Well, it's gone. Thank you, Larry. For jo- I'm sorry, Larry. Larry. We're, we're, we literally have seconds. And I wanted to thank you for, for joining us on air. But I also wanted you, really quickly, can you tell us what your next event is? Uh, that is a great question. I'm all over the place. I'm heading to the Westside County Fair this evening at 3.30. So if you want to be at Riverside Park South, I'll be there oh, yeah. 3.30 this evening. If you want to see what I'm doing, please go to my Facebook page, Larry Sharp for New York. Or go to my website, LarrySharp.com. That's sharp with an E, and the E stands for electable. Like it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Larry. Good luck. Thank you. Have, have a good one, guys. You too. Um, you know, for the rest of the show... Next, we are going to hear an interview by our co-host, Violet Barron, uh, with Zelnor Myrie, a New York candidate running for the New York State Senate in Brooklyn District 20, spanning several neighborhoods in the borough. Zellner's primary race is this Thursday, September 13th. Go out and vote. And he's contesting a longstanding but controversial incumbent. Let's hear how he sets the race up and how he plans to shake things up. Let's do it. So uh, I've I've been reading up on your campaign, and it sounds like there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. You must be super busy as we get closer to the election. Yeah, we're 18 days out. It's kind of hard to believe that that it's that close because uh, we've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, but I feel I feel very good. Uh, I feel you know you're getting that last bit of adrenaline as we get closer right. to the finish line. So uh, so I'm excited to get here. Awesome. Um, so to start off, I'm sure you've done this a million and one times, but could you give a little bit of background on you and your campaign? Uh, sure. And so um, I uh, was born and raised in the district. The, the, this is the 20th state senate district in central Brooklyn. Uh, we had about eight neighborhoods. Uh, we got Crown Heights, we got Brownsville, Prospect Leopard's Gardens, parts of East Flatbush. We have Park Slope, Prospect Heights, uh, parts of Gowanus and Sunset Park. And so a very big district, but, uh, you know, a district that my parents moved to about 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, I went to the public schools in this district. Um, you know, I had the good fortune to, to, to kind of have the community raise me all the way up um, to, to Cornell Law School. Uh, this campaign has been one um, of, uh, of grassroots. You know, when we first started, we didn't have any endorsements, and we had zero dollars in our fundraising account. Um, and we really have been able uh, to show over the past couple of months that um, Democrats, from not just uh, inside the district, but from all over the city, uh, really are excited about taking control um, of the state Senate. And so we're very proud to have the support of a lot of the uh, progressive organizations, the political clubs in this district, the majority of the assembly members, the council members, and even every member of Congress in the district supporting our efforts. Uh, I'm super excited, and um, I feel like we, we just got to close out the deal these last 18 days. Mm, and that's great. And um, you're not alone as a um, pretty deeply progressive candidate. We've been seeing sort of a new wave of um, people with real uh, deeply rooted progressive ideals um, moving in. Do you feel like you're a member of that group? You know, uh, we've got uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez in Congress, and now we're hearing about Julia Salazar and Cynthia Nixon. Do you yeah. identify with that group? Yeah, I think what we've seen, um, certainly since the election of the current president, uh, is that people see the consequences that elections have. Um, and I think that a lot of folks, particularly folks um, in my generation who, you know, we came into professional existence during the Great Recession, 
Uh, but we also saw the country elect its first black president. Um, and that was followed by, you know, Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin. Um, and then the election of the most racist and xenophobic and misogynist president that this country has seen. And so I am not at all surprised that there are a lot of candidates who are stepping up at this time to say we're going to run as progressives and we're going to do so in an unabashed way because the elections have consequences and there are rights that we take for granted um, that we can't afford to do so anymore. Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. So um, I think your campaign in particular is interesting because you uh, really dive deep into um, your uh, the incumbent you're working against and uh, his patterns as a Democratic um, representative. So um, can you give us a little refresher on the IDC and what that's all about in New York? Sure. You know, a lot of times people say that the IDC or the Independent Democratic Conference um, that it's too complicated to talk to folks, that it's too insider baseball um, to explain to everyday people. Uh, but the truth is, uh, is that it's a very simple proposition. There were Democrats who were elected as Democrats, ran as Democrats in their communities, and then when they got to Albany, where no one was watching, uh, they decided to caucus with Republicans and give them the majority. In exchange for that, they got chairmanship, they got bigger offices, uh, and they got higher salaries. And I think for a long time before uh, the election of, of, of this current president, uh, there was a there was a sense of apathy around local politics and around these group these group of uh, rogue Democrats who who decided to caucus with Republicans. Uh, but I think people have turned their attention inward. People are upset about that. There is a sense of betrayal. Um, and the truth is, is that um, even if for whatever stated reason you thought this was a good idea. Um, Certainly after the election of Donald Trump to the White House, one would think that you would not want to associate yourself with, much less give power to the party of Donald Trump. And that's exactly what my opponent did. Right. Right. And what was the name of your opponent right now? Yeah. So his name is Jesse Hamilton. Okay. And... um... You know, I think it's kind of jarring to hear about uh, every time I hear about the IDC because I think of New York as a pretty solidly blue state, and I think of Democrats as working in progressive interests. So I, I don't even know how it's possible that uh, we could be in this situation. You know, with it's so much. Yeah, no, I share your frustration because here in New York, Democrats uh, by registration outnumber Republicans two to one. And the lower house of the state legislature, the New York State Assembly, reflects that majority, right? About two-thirds of the, of the assembly um, is Democrat and rightly has a Democratic speaker. Um, and they, with that majority, pass progressive legislation year after year after year after year. But in the state Senate, where the districts are severely gerrymandered, uh, the Republicans have been able to maintain a majority either outright um, by, by more numbers um, or because of the IDC. Um, these Democrats that have given them power. And so what we, when we talk about the IDC, I think it's important for us to remember that this wouldn't even exist without gerrymandering. Um, and so not only do we have to get rid of these fake Democrats, uh, but the next time that we're drawing the district, we have to be very cognizant of the fact um, that if not for gerrymandering, the Republicans wouldn't have any shot. Right. Yeah, I think that... Um one of the biggest arguments I hear or I have heard for the IDC is uh, that, you know, this is just politics. Like, uh, it was formed at a time when there was more of a Republican presence uh, for voting in uh, New York State Senate, but 
just in general, if you want legislation to pass, you have to work with the opposition. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that uh, that ideology. Yeah, I think, you know, it is really a misdirection. It is a red herring to say that um, people who are opposed to the IDC are opposed to bipartisanship. I think there is a material difference between reaching across the aisle and getting up and sitting on the other side of the aisle. Um, reaching across the aisle is necessary to pass legislation. Um, and even within our own party, um, there are some Democrats who are more conservative than the folks down here in New York City. That's not what the IDC is. Um, that's what they would like for people to believe they are. Uh, if you wanted to work with Republicans, you could have done that within the Democratic majority. Uh, but you gave them power. Um, and mm-hmm. for that, they gave you power. And that's what we're really talking about here. It is political gain. Um, over progressive legislation. So uh, it is, you know, it's a bit of a misdirection, and it really adds to why, um, you know, talking about it can be so confusing. Right. Okay, I see. Um, and then, okay, so that th- you're making good points, um, but I'm a little bit curious what you would do differently, how you would address the problem of getting the Republicans to work with Democrats in terms of legislation. Is there a, um, an alternative, uh, you know, progressive method for that? Yeah. So, you know, the, the fact is that the people of the state of New York voted and they decided that they wanted to have more Democrats in the state Senate than Republicans. I think that we have to respect the will of the people when it comes to making legislation. And if the people have said, we want more Democrats than Republicans, then they want a Democratic agenda, right? Now, that doesn't always require us to um, compromise. and doesn't always require us to reach across the aisle uh, because the people have spoken. Uh, but I think the instances where it, it does, um, I'd be happy to do so. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about this is when we say that this is just politics, it really does a disservice because our communities suffer because of the IDC and Republican control of the state Senate. For example, the chair of the housing committee for the entire state of New York is a Republican that represents Lake Placid, which is closer to Canada than it is to New York City. Yet this Republican gets to treat the housing policy for people in my district, people in Town Heights, people in Brownsville, people in Prospect Leopard's Garden. And the only reason that they have that chairman is because of Republican control. Um, and that's the, that's the difficult part. Um, you know, that's why we, that's why it's not just politics. If we had a Democratic chair, then we would, we would at least be discussing legislation, um, that, that would be friendly for our community. Okay. All right. I see. Um, now, uh, another, uh, topic that's big in your campaign is housing. And of course, that's, you know, the big dragon in Brooklyn, um, affordable housing, gentrification, how we respond to, uh, you know, all of the new industry and all of the new interest in the borough that in some ways is good and in some ways is meaning trouble for the longtime residents. Um, so, you know, I'm also a native Brooklynite. I, um, I'm also uh, pulled in further to the borough than I originally was just because right. of housing prices, right? So um, maybe, <laughs> you know, this is often cast so negatively. I'm curious what proposals uh, you've heard recently that excite you that you think Brooklyn might do well to move in those directions in terms of yeah. affordable housing? No, absolutely. To me, it's the number one issue. Uh, and, it's, and it's exactly, as you said, it is something that I think acutely affects Brooklyn, uh, and particularly central Brooklyn. Uh, uh, we have an opportunity next June 
Uh, we're renewing our housing law, particularly those that affect unstabilized units. Um, and there's some things in the law right now that incentivize landlords to kick people out. I think we need to get those off of the books. But I also think there's some proactive things that we can do um, to move people from rent to ownership. Uh, I think that it is much harder uh, to uproot people uh, out of a community um, if they have um, uh, equity and then if they have um, uh, um, um, ownership. And so um, I think there's some things that the state could do. Uh, there are some financial uh, institutions uh, that, that can help foster um, this path to ownership. Um, and I think that we also have an opportunity with the public land that's available um, to make use of community land trust, which, which also would provide that path to, to, to home ownership. And so, um, you know, I, I, I look forward to being a strong advocate um, for our rent, uh, rent regulated units. I grew up in a rent stabilized apartment, uh, but I also am looking forward to making use of, um, uh, you know, of some paths to home ownership. Mm, that's great. Yeah, that's something we don't hear about as much uh, in this landscape. Um, I'm I'm also curious, you know, uh, I know you've spoken um, in your campaign, and it's a huge issue we're hearing about a lot, uh, chronic problems uh, in public housing, uh, especially in Brooklyn, you know, um, just the conditions people are living in, the uh, time it takes to get a response to issues with uh, with the housing and um, just, you know, lack of maintenance and care to these units. Um, so uh, what are some things that state Senate can do to address this, do you think? You know, um, the, the, the problem with our public housing stock, and, you know, we have a neighborhood um, that has the highest concentration of public housing in the entire city on Brownsville. Um, the problem is that there has been massive disinvestment from the government on every level of government, federal, state, and city. Um, they have abandoned public housing. Um, and what we now have um, are attempts to fill in the gaps um, with funding that is wholly inadequate. And so we have a, a, a public housing stock that is you know, facing a $31 billion capital deficit. Um, and we have a state government that invested this year, um, I think somewhere around $300 million, right? Which is really, it's a lot of money, but it's a drop in the bucket. And so I think that we need some out-of-the-box um, solutions to this problem. I don't uh, profess to have all the answers to it, but I know that we leave a lot of tax money on the table, um, you know, through a lot of Wall Street transactions. Um, we rebate billions of dollars in taxes that we collect, um, and I think that there is an opportunity there to not rebate those um, and to have that be invested in our public housing stock. I also think we need some um, a change of management. And as it stands now, there's a lot of finger pointing um, and people absolve themselves of responsibility. Uh, but I think what we are seeing now with the MTA and how um, how much of a disrepair it is in, um, that happened because there were years of mismanagement and people not stepping up and being accountable. We are seeing that, the beginning of that in our public housing stock. And I think we need to take action now before it falls into complete disrepair. Mm, yeah. All right. I, it's hard to argue with that one. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about uh, here is um, public school and access to quality public schools. Um, you know, I, I, too, went through the public school system in New York City, and I, uh, I was impressed to see that you went to Brooklyn Tech. That means you, uh, we know you're smart, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're a techie. Uh, you did that impossible uh, SHSAT exam uh, as a middle schooler. Um, so... Uh, 
What do you think about the changes? How do you think the systems have changed for better or worse uh, since you were a student in the time since you've uh, been a New Yorker? Yeah, so I think the biggest biggest hold to me is uh, the funding for our school. Uh, there were a lot of activists and community leaders that fought for equal funding of schools throughout the state of New York. Uh, they were successful in 2009. The highest court in the state uh, agreed with them and said, our schools are not being funded equally. Um, here's the formula that you should be using. Um, and according to that formula, the schools in this district alone are owed $36 million, right? And it's money that the state refuses to fund equally. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in two legislative sessions ago, uh, when uh, Kevin Parker, Senator Parker, tried to get this funding um, into the law so that it wouldn't be subject to whoever is the governor, um, every member of the IDC walked out because uh, they didn't want people to know where they stood on this. And so that would be my first thing, is fighting for that $36 million in our schools. Uh, but the truth is that even with that, uh, we do have, uh, we still have a segregated school system. Um, and in a lot of ways, your zip code um, determines uh, your trajectory as a student. I was very fortunate that I had um, a math teacher that went rogue um, and topped the mm-hmm. curriculum and said, I'm going to prepare you guys for the specialized high school exam test uh and then you know we'll take it from there so i happened to do well on the test i was a very bad middle school student i was a goofball in class <laughs> uh, uh, but because i tested well um i had my whole trajectory changed i don't think that 180 minutes of the test could be determining the kid's um entire trajectory and so i do think that we need to figure out how to incorporate more admission criteria um i don't know exactly what that is uh, but i look forward to having a robust session about that uh, in the state legislature next session. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up school desegregation because that's uh, that's something I wanted to ask you about. Um, it's becoming a, um, a fiery topic in New York and in Brooklyn in particular because we're seeing people who, you know, parents of children who may not have felt they were acting this way, but acting as gatekeepers right. for their public uh, schools, starting with elementary school and even before um, and we had some, you know, really in-depth reporting uh, now a few years ago by Nicole Hannah-Jones, I think, who uh, really started to spearhead the issue. Um, so it, it's a, it's such a touchy topic because I think uh, one of the issues with that is um, that might be a last frontier for some people who feel that they are liberals who do want positive social change, but they don't want it at the expense of their children uh, getting those seats that they feel they've earned in these schools. Um, so, you know, I know you don't have all of the answers, but I'm curious what what your thoughts are on that that, that piece of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we're we seeing some of that in our district. There was just a um, uh, just a, a desegregation plan put forward uh, in school district 15, uh, which covers um, uh, you know the Park Slope and Sunset Park section of our district. Um, that I think I think the uh, the in principle was great. Um, you know I think it is it is it, it's a tough issue um, because I my personal experience in, in in my district is that when I went to PS161, um, it was a very good school and we were. Uh, a school that the majority of us were either at or below the poverty line, uh, but we were uh, some of the best um, uh, state test takers uh, in the entire state. We were like in the 95th percentile, um, uh, and that hasn't been the case recently. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to say exactly. 
why that is. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I to think that I'd be able to send my kids to public schools in this district and be very proud of that and not worried about what uh, about what their trajectory would be. And so um, I think it speaks to kind of just the larger issue um, in the Department of Education um, in uh, not just investing uh, uh, financially in our schools, um, but making sure that we're bringing them all up to par. So my dad is a public school teacher. has taught special education for the past um, 17 years. Um, and I think that, you know, kind of hearing his experience in the classroom um, and, you know, him being able to talk to the kids as a black male, um, I think is also something that uh, we need to be cognizant of. We don't see a lot in my community, a lot of teachers that look like us. Um, and I think that there are at times some cultural competency issues um, that, that, that need to be addressed as well. So um, it's a lot. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's something that, that I really um, want, want to elevate because uh, I would not be who I am today if it were not for the schools that I went to. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I can respect that. So um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I'm just curious to hear uh, what what's up for you now? What are your what are the biggest issues you're facing hurdles you're facing and um you're uh you're still sort of wearing out your shoe leather right now right you're doing a lot of campaign work um are you still collecting signatures for uh to get your name on the ballot no 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 so we that process that that process is done we will be on the ballot for sure um um, which is great uh but we are absolutely hitting the pavement um in fact um i stepped out to, to make this call um uh uh, from a block party, and that's really what we do on the weekends now. Um, it is block party season. Um, and then every day I'm on the subways, I'm at senior centers, and I'm knocking on doors. Um, and that's what we will be doing until until election day. Um, and you know, it's it, it, you know, running a campaign. Um, you know, a lot of times people say it's like building the plane as you're flying it. Uh, hmm. And you know, I think there's certainly a feeling of that when you are first candidate. Uh, but what has been really inspiring is uh, being able to talk to so many people in my community. I mean, really just seeing people's desire for a change in leadership and for people to start delivering. Um, and, and not just delivering, uh, you know, people have an understanding that you're not going to get everything you want, uh, but people want to see that you're actually trying and that you're pushing for them. Um, and I look forward to doing that uh, for my community. Right. All right. That's great. Um, so if uh, if anyone listening here was inspired and wants to know more or get involved, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So a couple of ways. Please visit our website. Um, it is D4, as is a number, NY.com, D4NY.com. You can sign up to volunteer. We need a bunch of volunteers. Our office is on 140 Empire Boulevard, and that is uh, Empire and Bedford right by the 7-Eleven. Uh, we'd love to have folks come in and, and help us out. 